Section 20 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Calvin. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688, by David Hume, Volume 1E, Section 20, Chapter 54, Part 4. The bishops, being forbidden by the ancient canons to assist in trials for life, and being unwilling by any opposition to irritate the commons, who were already much prejudiced against them, thought proper of themselves to withdraw. The commons also voted that the new created peers ought to have no voice in this trial, because the accusation being agreed to while they were commoners, their consent to it was implied with that of all the commons of England. Notwithstanding this decision, which was meant only to deprive Strafford of so many friends, Lord Seymour and some others still continued to keep their seat, nor was their right to it any further questioned. To bestow the greater solemnity on this important trial, scaffolds were erected in Westminster Hall, where both houses sat, the one as accusers, the other as judges. Besides the chair of state, a closed gallery was prepared for the king and queen, who attended during the whole trial. An accusation carried on by the united effort of the three kingdoms against one man, unprotected by power, unassisted by counsel, discountenanced by authority, was likely to prove a very unequal contest. Yet such were the capacity, genius presence of mind displayed by this magnanimous statesman, that, while argument and reason and law had any place, he obtained an undisputed victory, and he perished at last, overwhelmed, and still unsubdued by the open violence of his fierce and unrelenting antagonists. The articles of impeachment against Strafford are twenty-eight in number, and regard his conduct as President of the Council of York, as Deputy or Lieutenant of Ireland, and as Councillor or Commander in England. But though four months were employed by the managers in framing the accusation, and all Strafford's answers were extempore, it appears from comparison not that he was freed from the crime of treason, of which there is not the least appearance, but that his conduct, making allowable for human infirmities, exposed to such severe scrutiny, was innocent, and even laudable. The powers of the Northern Council, while he was president, had been extended by the King's instructions beyond what had formerly been practised, but that court being at first instituted by a stretch of royal prerogative, it had been unusual for the prince to vary his instructions, and the largest authority committed to it was altogether as legal as the most moderate and most limited. Nor was it reasonable to conclude that Strafford had used any art to procure those extensive powers, since he never once sat as president or exercised one act of jurisdiction after he was invested with the authority so much complained of. In the government of Ireland, his administration had been equally promotive of his master's interest, and that of the subjects committed to his care. A large debt he had paid off. He had left a considerable sum in the exchequer. The revenue, which never before answered the charges of government, was now raised to be equal to them. A small standing army, formerly kept in no order, was augmented, and was governed by exact discipline, and a great force was there raised and paid for the support of the king's authority against the Scottish Covenanters. 
Industry and all the arts of peace were introduced among that rude people. The shipping of the kingdom augmented a hundredfold. The customs tripled upon the same rates. The exports doubled in values the imports. Manufactures, particularly that of linen, introduced and promoted. Agriculture, by means of the English and Scottish plantations, gradually advancing. The Protestant religion encouraged, without the persecution or discontent of the Catholic. The springs of authority he had enforced without overstraining them. Discretionary acts of jurisdiction, indeed, he had often exerted, by holding courts-martial, billeting soldiers, deciding causes upon paper petitions before the council, issuing proclamations, and punishing the infraction. But discretionary authority during that age was usually exercised even in England. In Ireland, it was still more requisite among a rude people, not yet thoroughly subdued, averse to the religion and manners of their conquerors, ready on all occasions to relapse into rebellion and disorder. While the managers of the commons demanded every moment that the deputies' conduct should be examined by the line of rigid law and severe principles, he appealed still to the practice of all former deputies and to the uncontrollable necessity of his situation. So great was his art of managing elections and balancing parties that he engaged the Irish Parliament to vote whatever was necessary, both for the payment of former debts and for support of the new levied army. Nor had he ever been reduced to the legal expedients practised in England for the supply of public necessities. No imputation of rapacity could justly lie against his administration. Some instances of imperious expressions, and even actions, may be met with. The case of Lord Montnorris, of all those which were collected with so much industry, is the most flagrant and the least excusable. It had been reported at the table of Lord Chancellor Loftus that Annesley, one of the deputy's attendants, in moving a stool, had sorely hurt his master's foot, who was at that time afflicted with the gout. Perhaps, said Montnorris, who was present at table, it was done in revenge of that public affront which my Lord Deputy formerly put upon him, but he has a brother who would not have taken such a revenge. This casual, and seemingly innocent, at least ambiguous expression, was reported to Stafford, who, on pretense that such a suggestion might prompt Annesley to avenge himself in another manner, ordered Mount Norris, who was an officer, to be tried by court-martial for mutiny and sedition against his general. The court, which consisted of the chief officials of the army, found the crime to be capital, and condemned that nobleman to lose his head. In vain did Strafford plead his own defence against this article of impeachment, that the sentence of Mount Norris was the deed, and that too unanimous of the court, not the act of deputy, that he spake not to a member of the court, nor voted in the cause, but sat uncovered as a party, and then immediately withdrew, to leave them to their freedom, that, sensible of the iniquity of the sentence, he procured his majesty free pardon to Mount Norris, and that he did not even keep that nobleman a moment in suspense with regard to his fate, but instantly told him that he himself would sooner lose his right hand than execute such a sentence, nor was his lordship's life in any danger. In vain did Strafford's friends add, as further apology, that Mount Norris was a man of an infamous character, who paid court by the lowest adulation to all deputies while present, and blackened their characters by the vilest calumnies when recalled, and that Strafford, expecting like treatment, had used this expedient for no other purpose than to subdue the petulant spirit of the man. These excuses alleviate the guilt, 
but there still remains enough to prove that the mind of the deputy, though great and firm, had not been a little debauched by the riot of absolute power and uncontrolled authority. When Strafford was called over to England, he found everything falling into such confusion by the open rebellion of the Scots and the secret discontents of the English, that, if he had counselled or executed any violent measure, he might perhaps have been able to apologise for his conduct from the great law of necessity, which admits not, while the necessity is extreme, of any scruple, ceremony, or delay. But, in fact, no illegal advice or action was proved against him, and the whole amount of his guilt, during this period, was some peevish or at most imperious expressions, which, amid such desperate extremities, and during a bad state of health, had unhappily fallen from him. If Strafford's apology was in the main so satisfactory when he pleaded to each particular article of the charge, his victory was still more decisive when he brought the whole together, and repelled the imputation of treason, the crime which the commons would infer from the full view of his conduct and behaviour. Of all species of guilt, the law of England had, with the most scrupulous exactness, defined that of treason, because on that side it was found most necessary to protect the subject against the violence of the king and his ministers. In the famous statue of Edward III, all the kinds of treason are enumerated, and every other crime, besides such as are there expressly mentioned, is carefully excluded from their appellation. But with regard to this guilt, an endeavour to subvert the fundamental laws, the statue of treasons is totally silent, and arbitrarily to introduce it into the fatal catalogue is itself a subversion of all law, and under colour of defending liberty, reverses the statue the best calculated for the security of liberty that had ever been enacted by an English Parliament. As this species of treason, discovered by the Commons, is entirely new and unknown to the laws, so is the species of proof by which they pretend to fix that guilt upon the prisoner. They have invented a kind of accumulative or constructive evidence by which many actions, either totally innocent in themselves or criminal in a much inferior degree, shall, when united, amount to treason and subject the person to the highest penalties inflicted by the law. A hasty and unguarded word, a rash and passionate action, assisted by the malevolent fancy of the accuser, and tortured by doubtful constructions, is transmuted into the deepest guilt, and the lives and fortune of the whole nation, no longer protected by justice, are subjected to arbitrary will and pleasure. Where has the species of guilt lain so long concealed? said Strafford in conclusion. Where has this fire been so long buried, during so many centuries, that no smoke shall appear, till it burst out all at once, to consume me and my children? Better it were to live under no law at all, and by the maxims of cautious prudence to conform ourselves the best we can to the arbitrary will of a master, than fancy we have a law on which we can rely, and find at last that this law shall inflict a punishment precedent to the promulgation, and try us by maxims unheard of until the very moment of prosecution. If I sail on the Thames, and split my vessel on an anchor, in case there be no boy to give warning, the party shall pay me damages, but if the anchor be marked out, then is the striking on it at my own peril. Where is the mark set upon this crime? Where the token by which I shall discover it? It is laying concealed under water, and no human prudence, no human innocence, could save me from the destruction with which I am at present threatened. It is now a full 240 years since treasons were defined, and so long has it been since any man was touched to this extent upon this crime before myself. 
We have lived, my lords, happily to ourselves at home. We have lived gloriously abroad to the world. Let us be content with what our fathers have left us. Let not our ambition carry us to be more learned than they were in these killing and destructive arts. Great wisdom it will be in your lordships, and just provenance for yourselves, for your posterities, for the whole kingdom, to cast from you into the fire these bloody and mysterious volumes of arbitrary and constructive treasons, as the primitive Christians did their book of curious arts, and betake yourself to the plain letter of the statue, which tells you where the crime is, and points out to you the path by which you may avoid it. Let us not, to our own destruction, awake those sleeping lions, by rattling up a company of old records, which have lain for so many ages by the wall, forgotten and neglected. To all my afflictions, add not this, my lords, the most severe of any, that I, for my other sins, not for my treasons, be the means of introducing a precedent so pernicious to the laws and liberties of my native country. However, these gentlemen at the bar say they speak for the commonwealth, and they believe so. Yet, under favour, it is I who, in this particular, speak for the commonwealth. Precedents like those which are endeavoured to be established against me must draw along such inconveniences and miseries, that in a few years the kingdom will be in the condition expressed in a statue of Henry the Fourth, and no man shall know by what rule to govern his words and actions. Impose not, my lords, difficulties insurmountable upon ministers of state, nor disable them from serving with cheerfulness their king and country. If you examine them, and under such severe penalties, by every grain, by every little weight, the scrutiny will be intolerable. The public affairs of the kingdom must be left waste, and no wise man, who has any honour or fortune to lose, will ever engage himself in such dreadful, such unknown perils. My lords, I have now troubled your lordships a great deal longer than I should have done. Were it not for the interest of these pledges, which a saint in heaven left me, I should be loath. Here he pointed to his children, and his weeping stopped him. What I forfeit for myself, it is nothing, but, I confess, that my indiscretion should forfeit for them. It wounds me very deeply. You will be pleased to pardon my infirmity, something I should have said, but I see I shall not be able to, and therefore I shall leave it. And now, my lords, I thank God. I have been by his blessing sufficiently instructed in the extreme vanity of all temporary enjoyments, compared to the importance of our eternal duration. And so, my lords, even so, with all humility and with all tranquillity of mind, I submit, clearly and freely, to your judgments. And whether that righteous doom shall be to life or death, I shall repose myself, full of gratitude and confidence, in the arms of the great author of my existence. Certainly, says Whitlock, with his usual candour, never any man acted such a part, on such a theatre, with more wisdom, constancy and eloquence, with greater reason, judgment and temper, and with a better grace in all his words and actions, than did this great and excellent person. And he moved the hearts of all his auditors, some few excepted, to remorse and pity. It is remarkable that the historian who expresses himself in these terms was himself chairman of that committee which conducted the impeachment against this unfortunate statesman. The accusation and defence lasted eighteen days. The managers divided the several articles among them and attacked the prisoner with all the weight of authority 
with all the vehemence of rhetoric, with all the accuracy of long preparation. Strafford was obliged to speak with deference and reserve towards his most inveterate enemies, the Commons, the Scottish nation, and the Irish Parliament. He took only a very short time on each article to recollect himself, yet he alone, without assistance, mixing modesty and humility, with firmness and vigour, made such defence that the Commons saw it impossible, by a legal prosecution, ever to obtain a sentence against him. But the death of Stafford was too important a stroke of party to be left unattempted by any expedient, however extraordinary. Besides the great genius and authority of that minister, he had threatened some of the popular leaders with an impeachment, and, had he not himself been suddenly prevented by the impeachment of the Commons, he had that very day, it was thought, charged Pym, Hamden, and others with treason, for having invited the Scots to invade England. A bill of attainder was therefore brought into the lower house immediately after finishing these pleadings, and, preparatory to it, a new proof of the Earl's guilt was produced, in order to remove such scruples as it might be entertained with regard to a method of proceeding so unusual and irregular. Sir Henry Vane, the secretary, had taken some notes of a debate in council after the dissolution of the last parliament, and being at a distance, he had sent the keys of his cabinet, as was pretended, to his son, Sir Henry, in order to search for some papers which were necessary for completing a marriage settlement. Young Vane, falling upon this paper of notes, deemed the matter of the utmost importance, and immediately communicated it to Pym, who now produced the paper before the House of Commons. The question before the council was, offensive or defensive war with the Scots? The king proposes this difficulty. But how can I undertake offensive war, if I have no more money? The answer ascribed to Strafford was in these words. Borrow of the city a hundred thousand pounds. Go on vigorously to levy ship money. Your majesty having tried the affections of your people, you are absolved and loose from all rules of government, and may do what power will admit. Your majesty, having tried all ways, shall be acquitted before God and man, and you have an iron army in Ireland, which you may employ to reduce this kingdom to obedience, for I am confident the Scots cannot hold out five months. There follow some counsels of Lord and Cottingham, equally violent with regard to the king's being absolved from all rules of government. This paper, with all the circumstances of its discovery and communication, was pretended to be equivalent to two witnesses, and to be an unanswerable proof of those pernicious counsels of Strafford which tended to the subversion of the laws and constitution. It was replied by Strafford and his friends that Old Vane was his most inveterate and declared enemy, and if the secretary himself, as was by far most probable, had willingly delivered to his son this paper of notes, to be communicated to Pym, this implied such a breach of oaths and of trust as rendered him totally unworthy of all credit that the secretary's deposition was at first exceedingly dubious. Upon two examinations, he could not remember any such words. Even the third time, his testimony was not positive, but imported only, that Strafford had spoken such or such like words, and words may be very like in sound, and differ much in sense. Nor ought the lives of men to depend on grammatical criticisms of any expressions, much less of those which had been delivered by the speaker, without premeditation, and committed by the hearer, for any time, however short, to the uncertain record of memory. That, 
in the present case, changing this kingdom into that kingdom, a very slight alteration. The Earl's discourse could regard nothing but Scotland, and applies no advice unworthy of an English counsellor. That even retaining this expression, this kingdom, the words may fairly be understood of Scotland, which alone was the kingdom that the debate regarded, and which alone had thrown off allegiance, and could be reduced to obedience. That it could be proved, as well by the evidence of all the king's ministers, as by the known disposition of the forces, that the intention never was to land the Irish army in England, but in Scotland, that of six other councillors present, Lord and Windebank could give no evidence. Northumberland, Hamilton, Coddington and Jackson could recollect no such expression, and the advice was too remarkable to be easily forgotten, that it was no wise probable such a desperate counsel would be openly delivered at the board, and before Northumberland, a person of that high ranks and whose attachments to the court were so much weaker than his connections with the country. That though Northumberland, and he alone, had recollected some such expressions as that of being absolved from the rule of government, yet, in such desperate extremities as those into which the king and kingdom had then fallen, a maxim of that nature, allowing it to be delivered by Strafford, may be defended upon principles the most favourable to law and liberty, and that nothing could be more iniquitous than to extract an accusation of treason from an opinion simply proposed at a council table, where all the freedoms of debate ought to be permitted, and where it was not unusual for the members, in order to draw forth the sentiments of others, to propose counsels very remote from their own secret advice and judgment. End of section 20 Chapter 54 Part 4 Recording by Matthew Calvin Canberra, Australia